Amen. Good morning, everyone. I'm super excited to introduce our speaker today. It's Matthew Sorens from World Relief. Um, if you remember, we were supposed to have him in in March, and there was a blizzard in March, and we never call off church, but we called off church on that day because he couldn't get in, mainly. And then last night, he came in really, really late, and it was storming, and he ended up in Tulsa for an extra hour or so. So he almost didn't make it in today. So that's a sure sign he's supposed to be here, in my opinion, that there are some forces that were, that's like stopping it, but it's not going to happen. He's here. And so I wanted to let you know a little bit about the books that he's written. He's, bo- he's written both Welcoming the Stranger, which our redemptive community also titled Welcoming the Strangers, is read and gone through about the immigration, the history of immigration here in America, and then Seeking Refuge, which is um, another book that we read about the refugee crisis, the current one. This Welcome the Stranger has been updated. Both of these books are for sale for $10 out in the lobby. They're almost sold out. If you guys don't get one, then I think they're on Amazon, right, Matthew? Um, one of the things that happens is that we hear about, we hear the word immigration, or refugees, and we either go, oh, I just can't even listen to it anymore, or we hear things that are happening on the border, and it feels overwhelming. And so one of the things that Lakeland and the elders and the staff all want to do is learn how to respond to situations like this, and it's very difficult and very conflicted. I talked to someone yesterday who said, I'm just really conflicted about it. And one of the things, I was too, and I have an immigrant mother, which is weird. I called her after I read this book and I said, now what's your status? How did you get there? And I listened to her story because it's so overwhelming. I don't think anyone that I know well doesn't want to do something about it, but we just don't know what to do. Matthew's not necessarily going to go into all the things that uh, to do, although if you want to know what to do, he'll tell you exactly what to do on his Twitter. So follow him on Twitter because he's really great about not responding in a panic to some things, as we have all seen, but also giving great um, information on how to do this. But today he's going to talk about the biblical basis behind what the church should be doing and our stance from from a Christian perspective. So take notes because he has a lot of scripture for you and um, welcome him warmly. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Marta. Well, I am so glad I made it in last night. It was a little bit questionable at, a, at one point, but I'm so glad to be here. Um, I'm going to focus this morning on really looking at what the Bible says on this complex and obviously fairly controversial topic of, of refugees, of immigration. I know that even just hearing, oh, we're talking about this on Sunday morning, probably makes some of you a little bit uncomfortable, uh, because this is one of those issues that's in the news every single day, especially recently, and it's, it divides our country, and frankly, it divides our churches as well. But one of my goals is really to say, how do we think about this issue as, as followers of Jesus, not just from a political perspective or a, an economic perspective, but as, from a distinctly Christian perspective? A few years ago, uh, World Relief, where I worked, because our mission is to empower churches to serve the vulnerable, and in the U.S. we've particularly focused on serving refugees and other immigrants, we were really wondering how are churches, how are people within churches thinking about this topic as it's become such a heated issue. So we commissioned some research, a poll of evangelical Christians in the United States, and one of the questions we asked was, what is most informing your views on the topic of immigration? And the result, the, the, what we found was, to me, pretty troubling. A whopping 12% of evangelical Christians said, what most informs my views on immigration is the Bible. 
Now, if you're an evangelical Christian, you would say the Bible is your authority for any issue, right? But apparently not immigration, at least in, at a national level. In fact, the Bible, my local church, and the views of national Christian leaders combined were mentioned less often than media. So often we've had sort of a CNN perspective on this, or a Fox News perspective, or things we've seen on social media, but too rarely have we looked at what does the Bible say. So that's what I want to look at this morning. And I'll start with this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of a refugee. A few years ago at Christmas time, my daughter Zipporah just got really excited about our nativity set. I think we'd gotten this as a wedding present. You probably all have one in your house. Uh, but it's kind of like a fun toy because it's got like shepherds and wise men and lots of cute animals and Mary and Joseph and an angel. But Zippy, who has, you know, we've read the storybook Bible to her enough that she knows the Christmas story very well. She would just act out that story with the little figurines. But she turned to me one day and said, Dad, we're missing one of the figurines. We didn't get the mean king. I thought about that. Do any of you have a nativity set with the King Herod figurine? <laughs> it's maybe not our favorite part of the story. We tend to like the Christmas story to end with the wise men, the magi bowing down before Jesus with their gold frankincense and myrrh. It's great set up so we can all go open up some presents, right? But that's not where the Gospel of Matthew ends that story. In Matthew chapter 2, as soon as the wise men are on their way back to their country, uh, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, get up, take the child and his mother, Jesus, and escape to Egypt. Get away, flee, because Herod is coming to kill all the little boys in Bethlehem. And we know that's what happened from the text. We don't know much about the journey. We don't know how they were treated when they got to Egypt. We could speculate. Um, It's very possible that there was people there who welcomed them. But it's also quite possible that there was people who were wary of them. Maybe someone asked, how do we know that you're fleeing from Herod and not spies sent by Herod? Or, you know what, Joseph, we've got enough carpenters in this economy without you taking a job. That's speculation, Uh, But what's not speculation is that the nearly 26 million people in our world today who are refugees, who have been forced to flee their countries because of a well-founded fear of persecution, have someone in Jesus who can very personally identify with that plight because he lived it himself in his flesh. Another foundational biblical principle as we think about these issues comes from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 where we see that God created mankind in his image. And Christians have historically understood this idea of the image of God in each person to mean that human beings have inherent dignity. Regardless of any qualifier, regardless of your gender, regardless of your ethnicity or your language or religion, any other thing we might use to distinguish you, if you are a human person, your life is precious and valuable. And that is enough motivation for us to want to protect those who would be fleeing uh, the risk of harm. Yesterday, I was in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, just over the border, and I I met this man from Uganda who has come all the way up through South America, and he told me the story of how he was tortured in his country. He showed me some of the the wounds because he had been part of a political campaign that lost, and the winning side exacted their, their vengeance, and he's trying to escape. And if we believe that he is made in God's image, just like every one of us, we have a, a clear mandate to protect any sort of human life. But there's another dynamic to being made in the image of God, and that is that human beings are made in the image of the creator, which means we have potential to create and to contribute. And I think sometimes that dynamic gets lost when we talk about immigrants or refugees, because often the conversation very quickly goes to, well, what is this going to cost? What are those people going to consume? 
How many jobs are they going to take? And those are fair questions. But they're only fair questions if we're concurrently asking, what are they going to contribute? How many jobs are they going to create? The reality is that 40% of the Fortune 500 companies in this country were founded by an immigrant to their child. Immigrants are responsible for a whole lot of jobs in the United States of America, and that doesn't count all the small businesses that they are disproportionately likely to start. In fact, if you talk to economists, they will acknowledge that there are a lot of costs associated with immigration. That's true whether you look specifically at refugees or at highly skilled immigrants or those who are unlawfully present. But they almost universally agree that the net economic impact of immigration is positive. That is to say there are costs, but the contributions actually outweigh the costs. And that goes back to the reality that these are people made in the image of a creator God with that same spark of the divine to create and to contribute. Another biblical theme that we see repeatedly, especially in the Old Testament, is that God has a particular concern for those who are vulnerable. And in the Old Testament, we often see three groups of people who are uniquely mentioned as being vulnerable uh, in in repeated bases. Uh, Let's look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. See if you can pick out what the three groups are. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of all gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. The orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Or the immigrant, the sojourner, the stranger, the alien, depending upon your translation of the Bible into English. That Hebrew word is the word ger. And it appears 92 times in the Old Testament. This is not, uh, not just something that pops up one or two times. This is a very frequent theme. And that passage, you know, it's not that hard to understand. God loves these people, so you should too. And then God not only makes clear that he loves these vulnerable groups of people and commands his people to do the same, but he establishes laws, systems, to make sure that the needs of these particularly vulnerable groups of people could be met. Uh, So, for example, Deuteronomy 24, we see God tells the people, when you're harvesting your crops, uh, here it's your wheat, but later he talks about your olives, your grapes. When you harvest your crops, you go through one time and leave what remains for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. So there was a system in place for these vulnerable groups of people who, because of that status, were unlikely to be landowners, to be able to have their basic needs for food met. Another foundational biblical principle is the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we actually see that on the first instance in in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. But Jesus very much underscores that in the Gospels. When he is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds uh, in Luke 10, he says, it is to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors as yourselves. Which begs the obvious question, and this is the question that's asked by the legal scholar who's interacting with Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who's covered by that command to love your neighbor as yourself? And it says in the text that the, the lawyer asking the question was trying to justify himself. So he's looking for a very precise, limited definition of a neighbor so he can show that he is he has met that requirement. Maybe he would like the response to be, well, your neighbor is someone three doors down on either side as long as they're of the same language and religion and ethnicity as you. And I guess if that was a hard person to love, you could move. But that's not the response that Jesus gives. Jesus tells the story that we think of as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And most of you are familiar with that story. I won't go through all the details. But there's a few takeaways for us as we think about how it might apply to 
refugees or immigrants who might arrive in our community. One is that we certainly can conclude from Jesus' parable that we don't get to narrowly define who our neighbor is. The hero of the Good Samaritan story is a Samaritan who is ethnically and religiously different from the Jewish person beaten up on the side of the road. Not just different, but these were groups that did not get along. And a Good Samaritan at that time was an oxymoron. They were not considered good. They were ethnically and religiously different. But clearly that command to love our neighbors extends to those who are different from us. And another takeaway from that, this story, we might want to add like a caveat. You know, love your neighbor with some reasonable limitations, as long as it's completely safe. But it wasn't safe for the Good Samaritan to stop and linger on a part of a road with a reputation for being the sort of place where people are beaten and robbed and left to die. It would seem prudent from a human perspective to say, keep your head down, keep walking, don't stop for anything. Get out of there as quickly as you can. That's what I would probably tell my kids on a dangerous road at night, right? But the hero of this story is the person who did stop and did put himself at some risk so he could show love to this neighbor who was in need. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And I think about some of the churches that we partner with at World Relief in the Middle East who are welcoming and serving and caring for just an incredible number of refugees who have poured across the border from Syria where they're escaping the civil war. And they're not paranoid if they wonder if maybe a few bad people could sneak in with all the legitimate refugees. They don't have, at the governmental level, a thorough vetting system there. But they basically told us, you know, we were never under the impression that following Jesus was going to be safe. Which, for American Christians, maybe stings a little bit because we really value safety in this country. Uh, It's a very high priority for most Americans. And the irony is, it is quite safe to welcome refugees in the United States because unlike that situation between Syria and its neighboring countries, in the United States, anyone who comes as a refugee has been invited by the U.S. government. They have made, a very select, made it through a very selective and difficult vetting process. Last year, less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's refugees were able to come to the United States. And every one of them went through a vetting process. It usually takes about 18 months to three years to complete. Uh, it's actually the most thorough vetting that our government has for any category of visitor or immigrant coming into the country. And it's been incredibly effective. We've had about 3 million refugees enter the United States since the Refugee Act of 1980 was signed into law. Not a single one of them has taken an American life in a terrorist attack. That's a pretty, pretty impressive record. The Cato Institute in Washington says that the odds of an American being killed by a refugee-turned-terrorist are 1 in 3.9 billion. But our command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Not love your neighbor as yourself so long as the risks are, you know, less than one in four billion. It's just to love your neighbor as yourself, even if there was some risk. So that is refugees who go through a thorough vetting process, but then some people would say, yeah, but what about other immigrants who don't all go through that thorough vetting process? What about those who snuck into the country who are here unlawfully? Uh, And I think... That's where this issue becomes tense for a lot of Christians. Because on one hand, we want to love and welcome people. We want to share the gospel with people. But we also want to follow the law. And that's a good Christian uh, impetus. We have biblical reasons for that. Romans chapter 13 tells us everyone should be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except that which God has established. God establishes government. And uh, we don't have the liberty to just ignore laws that we don't like. So that's a tension point for a lot of Christians. Should we love and welcome people, or should we follow the law? And I would suggest that the answer is yes. We should love and welcome people and follow the law, and there's actually not the tension that we often presume there is. 
because it's not against the law to have your neighbor over for dinner, regardless of what you think their legal status may be. It's not against the law for a church to teach English classes or to teach someone Sunday school who they suspect might not be here lawfully, or for that person to teach them, teach others Sunday school, so long as there's not compensation involved. Uh, the one legal issue that could come up in terms of ministry would be employment. Uh, that's where it's kind of a black and white legal issue. But almost anything else that a church or an individual would do to interact with their immigrant neighbors, regardless of their legal status, is not unlawful. There's no law that requires you to report someone whom you suspect might be in the country unlawfully. Now, this issue is more challenging for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are themselves undocumented immigrants, who are not lawfully present. Uh, And there's a lot of those people. Uh, The church in the United States is growing most quickly in immigrant congregations. And that's a wonderful thing, but it brings some complicated legal questions into play. I think what sometimes gets missed is most of those people are desperate to get right with the law. It's not a question of they were too lazy to fill out the right form or didn't know where the right office was. They simply don't qualify under the law, as it is, in the vast majority of cases. Uh, They would do just about anything if they could make things right. And that's what we at World Relief have said for many years ought to be possible. We've said, you know, an amnesty that says you broke the law, but we're just going to ignore that and forgive it, doesn't honor the law. doesn't acknowledge that the law was broken. On the other hand, just deporting everyone means breaking up all sorts of families, people who've been here 20, 30 years, and that we don't want to be a part of either. But we think there's a way to both keep families together and honor the law, which is a a restitution process where people could come forward, pay a fine for having overstayed their visa, which is about half of those people out of status, or having crossed the border unlawfully, and have the chance to earn permanent legal status and eventually earn the chance to become American if they're willing to work for it. In our experiences, the vast majority of people would be so grateful for that opportunity. Uh, They're desperate for that chance to get right with the law. And then one other dynamic of this passage in Romans 13, speaking about how we interact with the law, is the other side of the law is there are laws that are there to protect immigrants. Uh, for example, our asylum laws, which have been really go back to the era after World War II when uh, the United States as a country, we were basically pretty ashamed that when uh, German Jews came on a boat fleeing the rising Nazi government in Germany, we sent them back. And many of them were killed in the Holocaust. And after that, the U.S., along with many other countries, said, we're never going to do that again. If you show up in our country, if you can get here, and you have a well-founded fear of persecution for particular reasons under the law, you will not be sent back. And frankly, there's a lot of pressure right now to change that, that law. There's a lot of pressure to maybe work around it, because more people are showing up, particularly at the U.S.-Mexico border, than have shown up in a long time. And I, again, I was there this weekend. Not all of them are going to qualify, but we believe it's so important that everyone gets the chance to make their case so that we don't be at risk of sending someone back to a situation where they'd be killed. And that also is a Romans 13 respecting the rule of law issue. Another dynamic, uh, biblically, that I think sometimes gets missed is that a significant number of the immigrants and, and refugees who come to the United States in particular are already strong Christians. In fact, if you go to the definition of a refugee, it's someone who has fled persecution uh, and left their country for particular reasons. One of those reasons is that qualifies you as religion. And it turns out the religion that gets more people in trouble in this world than any other today is Christianity. In fact, if you look at the refugees who settled to the U.S. in the last decade, more have been Christians than those of any other single country of origin, or any other single religious background. And the, the top country of origin for refugees to the United States in the last decade is Burma, or Myanmar in Southeast Asia. 
Uh, it's a country with largely Buddhist country, a very uh, repressive government that does not tolerate religious minorities. And that's why 70% of the refugees from Burma have been Christians, largely Baptists and Anglicans. Uh, I've had some of those folks as my neighbors. Uh, there's a Burmese Baptist church that met in the apartment underneath where I lived. You would know church was happening because there'd be about 40 sets of shoes sitting outside of the apartment. Uh, but I've had those people at my door to make sure I know who, I know who Jesus is. And frankly, I've got some things to learn about following Jesus from them because they have suffered for their faith. They have been forced to flee and run into a jungle and live there for weeks at a time and then escape their country, give up everything they had, live in a refugee camp for a decade or more. And I, when, when we welcome those brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a sense in which we're actually welcoming Jesus himself. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And he goes on to say, Whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, my sisters, you did it unto me. It's also important to know that our country is taking a lot fewer of those persecuted Christians as refugees than we historically have. Uh, The number of Burmese Christians arriving in the United States this year is on track to be down about 68% compared to 2016, just two years ago. The number of Iraqi Christians in 2016 was more than 1,500 who came as refugees to the United States. This year, uh, we will probably not reach 100, down about 95%. The number of Iranian Christians was above 2,000 in 2016. This year, it'll be about 75, down about 96%. And we're, we're missing out then on that opportunity to welcome these brothers and sisters in Christ who've been persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Of course, the flip side of a lot of refugees and immigrants being Christians is a lot of other refugees and immigrants are not Christians. And I think that's a unique tension point for some Christians who think, I'd like to take the Christians, but I'm nervous about the Muslims or others who are of different religious traditions. A lot of Christians see that as a real threat. But my view is it's actually a remarkable opportunity. I grew up in a great church where we had this missions festival every month and I, or every year. And I remember the bulletin board with the 1040 window, this particular part of the world where there was all these unreached people groups, people with almost no known followers of Jesus. And we would pray for those countries. We would strategize, how do we send missionaries there? And we should do that. But it's very difficult to do that because they do not have a lot of religious freedom in those countries. It's illegal to go there as a missionary. It's illegal to share your faith. It's illegal for someone to decide, I want to follow Jesus in many of these places. So we're missing something really important if we haven't noticed that God and his sovereignty has sent people from those various nations to the United States, to a context where we are blessed with religious freedom, where we are free to share our faith and people are free to receive it or to reject it. And to be really clear, we don't do proselytism. We're not tricking people into following Jesus. We're not saying we will help you if you pray this prayer. But we do believe in evangelism rightly understood, which is an invitation to a relationship with Jesus. And very often that happens in response to a question. Because when it's a team from a local church who welcomes a Muslim family at the airport and genuinely loves them as their neighbors, uh, which we're called to do whether or not they would ever share our faith, when we do that and we do so faithfully, it is rare that sooner or later there's not the question, why? Why do you love us so much? And we get to, as Peter 3 says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. And to do so with gentleness and respect. And we've seen many families from Muslim backgrounds and Hindu backgrounds and other religious backgrounds make the decision to follow Jesus here in the United States. A decision that, frankly, they would just be unlikely to have ever even had that opportunity 
had they stayed in their country of origin. One last biblical principle, and that's on the idea of hospitality. Now, uh, we're commanded throughout the Bible to practice hospitality in a few different places. Romans chapter 12 is one. But I think, for me at least, growing up, I thought of hospitality as uh, basically having your friends over for lunch. Like, maybe like a really nice lunch. You get some recipes off Pinterest or something. Uh, But actually, hospitality in the Greek of the New Testament is more complicated than loving your friends. Hospitality is the word philoxenia. It is literally the love of strangers, which is countercultural in the United States of America. I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons where we had these public service announcements about stranger danger, right? Like, strangers are scary people. I, I learned that as a kid. Don't take candy from strangers, except for on Halloween. Somehow that's okay. But, um, you know, obviously I understand why we send those messages to children, but I think sometimes as adults we carry that with us, this suspicion that maybe these people who are different from me, who are new to me, are a potential threat to me. Now, I'm not going to promise you that the Bible says all strangers are safe, but I can tell you we are commanded to practice hospitality, literally to practice loving strangers. And in Hebrews chapter 13, we're told that some people, by welcoming strangers, have entertained angels without realizing it. A number of years ago now, there was a new family that moved into the apartment complex where I was living. Actually, my, at the time, girlfriend, Diana, met them before I did, uh, she lived across the, across the courtyard, and she came over to my apartment one day and said, Matt, there's this new family. They are from East Africa. Mom is eight months pregnant, but doesn't know where the hospital is. Three other kids, they don't know anyone here. They don't have anything here. Uh, they'd come in on temporary visas, and they were seeking asylum. So had they come through the refugee program, World Relief would have been there at the airport to meet them with the team from a church, but World Relief didn't know they were coming. So they're kind of on their own. But we got to know them, and... Uh, you know, we wanted to help. We wanted to practice hospitality. So we put up a message on Facebook and said, hey, does anyone from our church have some, even an air mattress, just some furniture? Because this family is a big family in a one-bedroom apartment. Diana was there a few weeks later when that baby was born. And eventually the mom got her asylum application approved, which is not easy, uh, but it meant she could get work authorization, could get a job, could cover their own rent. And as months went by, they didn't need a lot of help anymore. They were just our friends. And that's actually what we hope to see. There's a lot of needs up front when a new family arrives, but long-term, we want this to be a reciprocal relationship. And they're a really wonderful Christian family. Um, So some time went by. Diana and I got married. They were part of our wedding. Another year went by, and their husband-slash-father showed up. And it is a long story why he couldn't be there when they first came. It goes back to the political situation they were fleeing. But I was there at the baggage claim in O'Hare when he met his two-year-old daughter for the first time. And they were all holding it together pretty well, and I was just a weepy mess. I mean, people were worried about me, kind of off in the corner at the baggage claim. But it was so moving to see him meet his two-year-old daughter, to see him embrace his son, who'd probably grown a foot in two years. And over time, he became a dear friend as well. And I remember at one point, he and his wife were over for dinner. They were sort of mentors to Diana and me in marriage, because we hadn't been married so long. We'd been married about a year at that point. And Jean Vier turned to us and said, So you guys have been married a while. When you can have kids? Which is not really a culturally appropriate question, but we will forgive that because they're not from here. The reality is we had both hoped and prayed to have kids since we'd been married. And it had been a year. It hadn't happened. We were starting to wonder if it wasn't going to happen. And it was a sensitive topic. So we shared that. We said this very nice casual Christian thing, which is we'd love for you to pray for us. And Jean Vier said, I I will be praying, and I just have this sense from the Lord that he's going to bless you with a child in the next year. Well, that was very sweet. Uh, but I didn't start painting the nursery 
because it's not like we hadn't tried prayer. But it was only a few months later, we were over at their house for dinner, and we got to share with them the good news that Diana was pregnant. And they were the first people we told. There was like a few seconds of a language delay as they're comprehending our English in their own language. And as soon as they understood, they literally fell down on the ground, prostrate, shouting all sorts of Jesus and hallelujahs. It was like a Pentecostal church service in their kitchen. (laughs) And they went on to tell us that they had been getting up early every Thursday, that they had been fasting all day on Thursdays and praying that God would bless us with a child. And we can see my daughter, Zipporah, up there on the screen. Uh, She's six now, but that was her one-year-old birthday with Jean-Vier Marie. And she is, I have no doubt, the answer to their prayers. And to mine, but mostly to theirs, because I didn't fast and pray on Thursdays. (laughs) Also, we're up to three kids now, and I've been requested that they stop praying. Uh, (laughs) But I'll I'll close with, with that, and with that challenge, to practice hospitality. Practice loving strangers, and don't be surprised if a few of them turn out to be angels in disguise. Thanks. So, yeah, if you see Matthew out uh, in the media, then you know who we're talking about, and he is working with World Relief. And that's what we support around here as well with uh, 2020. You guys still have these sitting around on your kitchen table somewhere? You know, ours are sitting on top of the microwave, so I put it back on the table. Here's all the 13 initiatives that Lakeland works on around here, $1.1 million, and a portion of that goes to welcoming the stranger. Uh, As of um, right about now, we've done about $30,000 over the past year, uh, including 2020 then. That's in its 30th month out of 36 months, so we just have six months more left on it. And we continue to work on it. And some of you, um, if you're like me, you uh, have these little brass medallions, you know. You guys remember these? So uh, they're sitting somewhere or they're sitting in your car. Uh, mine's on my um, keychain, so it's with me all the time. It says 2020 on it. But all of these on here <clears throat> are the various initiatives. There's China. There's Welcoming the Stranger, Bronca's Voice, uh, right on down the line. We got involved in this, everyone, back in 2006. We just moved into this building, and we could all, like, get our head above water around here because we were no longer portable as a church and struggling with being portable. And so we said, now what are we going to do? And we said, well, we're going <clears> to <throat> fulfill the gospel is what we're going to do. You know, we're doing a pretty good job with seeking friends and neighbors. What about the poor? What about the stranger? And so we went to, elders went to Vancouver and talked to a pastor uh, that was uh, Chinese-American. And because um, we wanted to get involved with the persecuted house church in China. And I said, so what can we do? And he says, well, you can go to China and preach the gospel if you know Chinese, or you can fund it. And then he looked at me and he said, do you know Chinese? And I smiled and said, no, that's not true. He goes, I knew at that point. I said, well, I know what our job's going to be at Lakeland. We're going to fund other people who can do this sort of thing. And that's why we do 2020 and welcoming the stranger and all these sort of things that we do because the the power and the responsibility of the local suburban church is to fund the work of those with boots on the ground doing the work of the kingdom. That's what we do. That's our privilege. That's our responsibility. That's the thing we stand before Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, someday and says, you know, that thing you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And the response will be, because I was a part of a community that actually got the job done. 
that's what we're going to say. So that's why we do this sort of thing. So thank you, everyone, for participating in 2020. We'll continue to do this work, and even more so. And Matthew, thank you for what you do. I mean, like I said, first service, like, I don't know how you, you do this deep in your soul, how you, where you find the energy. You know, I mean, nothing personal or anything like that, but, you know, you're sort of a mild-mannered Clark Kent sort of guy, but there's, like, some sort of fire inside of you that, keeps you going so uh you know keep it going man you're inspiring very cool stuff yeah cool amen go in peace